Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Amos chapter 1, beginning to read at verse 1. The words of Amos, one of the shepherds of Tekoa, what he saw concerning Israel two years before the earthquake, when Uzziah was king of Judah and Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, was king of Israel. He said, The Lord roars from Zion and thunders from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds dry up and the top of Carmel withers. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Damascus, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath, because she threshed Gilead with sledges having iron teeth. I will send fire upon the house of Zael that will consume the fortresses of Ben-Hadad. I will break down the gate of Damascus. I will destroy the king who is in the valley of Avon and the one who holds the scepter in Beth Eden. The people of Aram will go into exile to Ker, says the Lord. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Gaza, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath because she took captive whole communities and sold them to Edom. I will send fire upon the walls of Gaza that will consume her fortresses. I will destroy the king of Ashdod and the one who holds the scepter in Ashkelon. I will turn my hand against Ekron till the last of the Philistines is dead, says the sovereign Lord. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Tyre, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath, because she sold whole community of captains to Edom, disregarding a treaty of brotherhood. I will send fire upon the walls of Tyre that will consume her fortresses. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Edom, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath because he pursued his brother with a sword, stifling all compassion. Because his anger raged continually and his fury flamed unchecked. I will send fire upon Teman that will consume the fortresses of Bozrah. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Ammon, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath. Because he ripped open the pregnant women of Gilead in order to extend his borders. I will set fire to the walls of Rabbah that will consume her fortresses. Amid war cries on the day of battle, amid violence winds on a stormy day. Her king will go into exile. He and his officials together, says the Lord. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Moab, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath. Because he burned 
as if to lime the bones of Edom's king. I will send fire upon Moab that will consume the fortresses of Kerioth. Moab will go down in great tumult, amid war cries and the blast of the trumpet. I will destroy her ruler and kill all her officials with him, says the Lord. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Judah, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath, because they have rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his decrees, because they have led astray, been led astray by false gods, the gods their ancestors followed. I will send fire upon Judah that will consume the fortresses of Jerusalem. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Israel, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath. They sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. They trample on the heads of the poor as upon the dust of the ground and deny justice to the oppressed. Father and son use the same girl and so profane my holy name. They lie down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. In the house of their God, they drink wine taken as fines. As we turn to God's word, I want to use a, a prayer of David from Psalm 139 as we prepare to look at his word together. Let's pray. David writes, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Amen. I guess we wouldn't like to admit it, but I wonder if many of us secretly quite like to write people off. Uh, TV programs like Britain's Got Talent has made millions partly because we like to write people off. You know how it works? The TV program does some research and they find a particular person who looks particularly run down. They've had a hard life. They look like a no-hoper. Um, perhaps physically they look unimpressive and they wheel them out onto the stage in front of the cameras. And we're all sitting there on a sofa nudging one another saying, I bet they're going to be rubbish. And... Um, they open their mouths, and often they are. And so we say to one another, look, I told you so, they're rubbish. And something about that, just we enjoy that process of, of seeing that about someone else. Of course, just occasionally, there's this Susan Boyle moment when someone comes on the stage and we write them off, and then they open their mouth, and we realize our mistake. She has sold over 20 million albums so far. Tonight, we begin a new series looking at the book of Amos, and if Amos appeared in a 7th century BC version of Israel's Got Talent, bear with me here, uh, he would be the kind of guy that we'd write off. 
Chapter 1, verse 1 gives us his backstory. If you have your Bibles open on page 916, you can see uh, chapter 1, verse 1. The words of Amos, one of the shepherds of Tekoa. Amos is a shepherd. Nothing wrong with being a shepherd, but he's not a prophet. He hasn't been to prophet school. He's not a professional paid prophet, and there were many of those around in his day. So he's the wrong guy to be coming to God's people with a word from God. And he's from the wrong place, Tekoa. You may not know it, but it's, it's 10 miles south of Jerusalem. It's, it's in the south. If you know your history, you'll know that 150 years before, God's people Israel painfully split north and south. The, the 10 tribes went to the north. Uh, little Judah remained in the south. And for 150 years, there was friction and turmoil. There was fighting, like two siblings having a go at one another. Um, it wasn't a happy relationship. And we read here that Amos is a southerner. And he's gone up north to speak to Israel. And it just felt wrong. It's the wrong guy and he's from the wrong place. You see, at this time in history, Israel was having the upper hand. They were... Uh, they just um, beaten Judah in a skirmish. You can read about it in 2 Kings 14. Uh, they were the bigger nation physically, uh, economically. Um, they, they seemed to be prospering more under God's rule than Judah. And so to have this southerner come to the prosperous north and tell them how to live, well, it's just he's from the wrong country. He's in the wrong place. But, but, but notice how verse 1 continues. What he saw concerning Israel... Two years before the earthquake, when Uzziah was king of Judah and Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, was king of Israel. Amos is the wrong guy, he's from the wrong place. And next we see he's speaking at the wrong time. Because again, if you go back to two kings, we realize that um, these two kings, the northern and southern kings, overlapped at a particular time in history. We can guess roughly when that happened. It's around 760 B.C., And in 2 Kings 14, we discover that that was a a unique time in the history of Israel, a time of prosperity, of peace. For once, there wasn't an enemy on the border of Israel about to invade. For once, they weren't under the hammer. For once, they were experiencing expansion. And for once, they were growing economically. It was a good time to be a rich person in Israel. You could make a buck if you invested it wisely. And you can just imagine Israel saying to Amos, look, don't bother us. We're doing fine. At last, we've got what we want. We're going in the right direction. Please leave us alone. You're the wrong man for the wrong place at the wrong time. And so it's very easy to write Amos off. What about us here tonight? Many, many years later. But I wonder how many of us, when we discover that we're studying Amos for the next eight weeks thought to ourselves, hmm, Amos? Really? Is there, is there someone else we can look at? Maybe a different book? You know, a slightly easier one, maybe a more contemporary one? It's written 2,700 years ago to a different culture, to a different people. It's, it's full of hard stuff. And we even call it one of the minor prophets. Isn't there someone else? On Britain's Got Talent, you only know if someone's any good or not when they open their mouth. 
Well, what happens when Amos opens his mouth? Verse 2. He said, The Lord roars from Zion and thunders from Jerusalem. The Lord roars when this unlikely man speaks. Uh, This week, one evening, uh, I was with Lorna. We were driving um, in the Hope Valley just over the way, and it was one of those lovely sunny evenings, and it was just stunning in the light in the evening. And the valley was just uh, lush and green, and it was just wonderful. Well, just imagine that scene of green, lush valley suddenly, in an instant, charred in black and desolate. That's what Amos is talking about, end of verse 2. The pastures of the shepherds dry up, the top of Carmel withers. When this lion roars, things happen. I've never met a lion face to face. Uh, I do know that when I was much younger, I used to have a paper round. And um, on one particular occasion, I went into a garden that I thought was empty and safe. But as I turned into the gate, I realized that I wasn't alone. There was, in fact, a dog in the garden. And it came running at me, barking and growling. And I did the only sensible, the only brave thing, which was I legged it out of the garden. And if that's how I respond to a family pet, well, just imagine how we would respond face to face with a roaring lion. And tonight, over the next few weeks, we're going to look at a few flimsy bits of dried wood pulp with blobs of ink spattered across the pages. On one hand, they're so weak, so flimsy, we could write off these pages so quickly. But the way God has ordered his world is that he has chosen to roar to his people through these pages. And so in the coming weeks, we have a decision to make. I do, we all do. Are we going to write Amos off? Or are we going to listen to the roar of the lion? Tonight is, I guess, an introduction to the book. Um, The headline first tonight is this. God's patience will not last forever. His patience will not last forever. Why? Well, because, first of all, God knows what the nations are up to. He knows what the nations are up to. Uh, Chapter 1 contains a series of oracles against the nations. And actually, if you were from Israel and you heard this wrong prophet arriving and you heard these words coming out of his mouth, you might think, he actually, he's not too bad, is he? I, I like this guy. He's talking about our enemies. He's talking about their downfall as Amos goes in turn. He circles around the nation of Israel and speaks to the six closest nations. And he proclaims a word of judgment. But actually, this announcement is for Israel, not the nations. This vision, verse 1, is for Israel. And actually, they need to hear what God thinks of the nations. And Amos follows a very careful pattern. He turns the camera lens from one nation to the next. And for each nation, the message is clear. Look with me how each one begins. For example, verse 3. Uh, This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Damascus, even for four, 
I will not turn back my wrath. For three sins, even for four. And that same explanation, that same introduction is repeated again and again throughout the first chapter. So it's there uh, in verse 6 against Gaza. Or again, verse 9 against Tyre. Verse 11, Edom. Verse 13, Ammon. And then chapter 2, verse 1 against Moab. For three sins, even for four. It's quite awkward in the English how to translate that, that little introductory phrase. I think the sense, though, is quite clear. Amos has in mind an accumulation of, of sin being heaped one upon another. Sin on top of sin, crime on top of crime. Only one is mentioned for each nation. But I think the point is there are many, many, many more sins that could have been mentioned. But here are just some examples, if you want, to, to demonstrate the points. But there are many more if we wanted to go there. And I think the point is, the God of Israel is the God of the nations. And he knows what the nations are up to. He has kept an account of every sin added upon sin, added upon sin, upon sin. And he has been so incredibly patient He didn't just act after the first sin or the second sin or the third sin or the whole catalog of sins. He has been waiting. The Lord has been patient, far more patient than I think I would have been. And it's a wonder when we look at what the nations have been up to. Well, look, for example, at verse three again. God's wrath is coming because, end of verse three, She has threshed Gilead with sledges having iron teeth. It's a picture from harvest time. It was common to bring in the wheat and to lay it out and to get wooden planks with iron nails driven into the planks and to drag the planks across the wheat to separate the heads from the rest of the stalk. And here God says to Amos that Damascus has been using those sledges on a different kind of harvest, on a harvest of humanity. I don't think it's metaphorical language. Uh, The rest of the war crimes that are mentioned don't seem to be metaphorical. They seem to have actually happened. We get a picture here of just how gruesome the nations can be. If we read on to the chapter, we see more evidence of what the nations have been up to. Uh, verse 6, prisoners have been sold as slaves. Verse 9, treaties of trust have been broken. Verse 11, brothers have attacked brothers. Verse 13, pregnant woman ripped open. 2 verse 1, victims have been burned. It is a horrendous picture of what the world gets up to. And these are just a few examples that Amos holds out for God's people, but there are many more. Sin piled on sin. And so again, in each case, Amos warns that fire and judgment are coming to each nation. And just as the crimes are horrendous, so the judgment is also horrendous. We, 
we should read these verses with tears in our eyes, for these are real people, real nations. God's patience will not last forever because he knows what the nations are up to. If it was true then, it is still true today. It doesn't take long, maybe a glance at the TV to see what is going on in our world. And we discover that the nations around us are in many ways no better than in the day of Amos. Recent calculations estimate that the death toll in Syria has now reached 140,000 people. Care UK estimates that this last year, around 21 million people have been trafficked into forced labor as slaves. In the UK, alone this current year, around 2,000 people have already been rescued from trafficking gangs who have been enslaved by them. Our stories are dominated by uh, the particular headline we prayed about tonight, the 200 girls who have been kidnapped uh, in Nigeria. But that happens in our country as well. The city I used to work in, Oxford, was full of the news recently of those young girls who were groomed and forced into prostitution. In a city of great learning, a kind of light in our country was much evil. God knows what the nations are up to. A few years ago, I was traveling back from a wedding on a train, and I began to speak to the lady next to me, and um, it turned out she was studying for a master's in international development. And I was genuinely curious. I wasn't being mischievous. Um, and I asked her, I said, so, tell me, um, what's the great plan? What are you studying in your course that will change the world? And her face just clouded over. I can't remember her exact words, but she said basically this. She said, there isn't one. The academy has no idea how to fix the world. Nothing really works. Nothing seems to last. I guess I was being quite blunt, but I said to her, so what, why are you bothering studying this course? I, I was being blunt, actually. Um, and she said, you still have to try. You still have to try. Isn't that the summary of human history when you take God out of the equation? Attempt after attempt to sort out a broken, messed up world. And all we can say is, you still have to try. God knows what the nations are up to. And so we find with tears in Amos 1 that God's patience will run out. He has been incredibly patient, but he is not a moral jellyfish. And eventually... He says to Amos, a time is coming when I will have had enough. I will not wait any longer. And this is not easy. If we have a heart, we must be wondering, what about God's love? How can a loving God do this to all the nations? Well, I was listening to a debate on the radio recently between two Christians debating a particular point of morality. And there was quite a lively discussion going back and forth. And then at one point, the one speaker said this, which closed down the conversation. She said, 
I believe in the Bible. The Bible tells me God is love. Therefore, I believe God accepts everyone, and so should I. That was it. You couldn't, couldn't talk back to that. That was the end of the debate on the radio. And it is true. God is love. But that mantra has become a 21st century mantra which closes down any other discussion about God's character. And it's a mantra which rings very hollow if you look back in history. This last Friday, we've just celebrated the D-Day landings 70 years ago. A day of victory, I guess, but a day of tremendous human sacrifice, tremendous bloodshed, lives lost, homes destroyed. And the question on everyone's lips after that event and throughout the war was not, oh, isn't God loving? No, it's, how could a loving God let this happen? And it would have been grotesque to walk around the streets of England proclaiming, God is love, to a world crying out for justice. But you see, you give a nation 70 years of peace and prosperity, and the mantra goes, where is God? To, God loves everyone. But you see, both statements aren't quite true, because both are reacting to our circumstances. And Amos doesn't get his theology from his circumstances and his experience. He gets it from God. And I think he proclaims a picture of God which is more nuanced and more complete. We see a God, chapter 1, who is extremely patient. Who waits for the nations to repent. Who does love. But also he is a God who will one day step in and respond to evil. And of course, it is at the cross where we see how God will do this fully. The cross is where wrath and mercy meet. One man has died that the world might live. As we read Amos chapter one, we must think of the cross. The cross is what we should be teaching in our international development courses. That's a different topic, but um, that is where we should go from Amos one running to the cross. We should be those who long to get the cross out to the nations, for that's what the nations need, the message of a God who is both just and loving. Well, God's patience will not last forever because, first of all, he knows what the nations are up to. Secondly, this is our final point, he knows what his people are up to. You can imagine the scene as Amos proclaimed his message to Israel as he circled around the nations surrounding Israel and nation by nation he had pronounced downfall and destruction and therefore, I guess, freedom for Israel from these nations. You can imagine them cheering almost and becoming excited for these were real enemies, real foes that had really persecuted them. But in 2 verse 4, the cheering would have died on the lips. For this is what the Lord says. For three sins of Judah, 
even for four, I will not turn back my wrath. It is hard to convey just how utterly shocking that verse is. Chronologically, Amos is the first prophet to speak to God's people as a standalone ministry. 2 verse 4 is the first time in history that God's people would have heard firsthand that they too were facing his judgment. And it doesn't stop with Judah. Look with me at verse 6. This is what the Lord says for three sins of Israel, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath. The rhetoric is devastating. Do you see how Amos has developed his argument through these opening verses of his prophecy? Every cheer raised at the news of victory over the enemies now turns to a cry of condemnation against God's people in chapter 2. Do you see the logic? It's similar to how Paul writes in the opening chapters of Romans as he begins with the nations and talking about how they have turned away from God's general revelation of himself made known through creation. But then he circles in and turns his focus on God's people. And so too Amos. And his point is this. If the nations deserve judgments, how much more do God's people? Because, verse 4, they have rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his decrees. God's people have been given so much, so much more than the nations around them. They've been given God's particular law. They've experienced God's particular salvation for them. They should have been a people who love and worship him alone. But verse five, they have been led astray to worship other gods. God's patience will not last forever. He knows what his people are up to. Well, what have they been up to? In a sense, that's the topic of the rest of the book as Amos uncovers what God's people have been up to. And I think tonight just gives us the headline. But I've been helped um, greatly by a summary that Hugh Palmer used when he uh, looked at this book years ago. Uh, He quotes the words of Jesus in Luke 6, uh, verse 46, when Jesus says this. He says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? That's not a bad summary of the challenge we're going to hear in Amos. Verse 4 of Amos chapter 2. Why do you call me Lord, Lord on Sunday, but spend the rest of the week bowing down in worship to the idols of our career and our wealth or the idol of our house, or our self-image, or our academic success? Why do you worship God on Sunday and yet have so little space in your heart to love him the rest of the week? Or verse six, why do you call me Lord, Lord, but our bank account gives no indication that we use our money, that our use of money has changed in, in any way by knowing God? Why do we use our money in a way which looks just like how the world uses money? For selfish gain and at the expense of others. 
Or verse eight, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and then lie down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge? Back in Exodus 25, God makes provision for someone who racks up a debt. They're allowed to give their cloak to the person they owe money to as a pledge of their payments. Um, but the one who takes the cloak was meant to return it by evening for one very simple reason, which was that it gets cold at night and their neighbor needed his cloak back. But you see, Israel had started to keep the pledge. They were keeping the garments overnight. They were even, in fact, lying on it next to the pagan altars that they were worshiping at. In other words, they claimed to be God's people, but in their worship and in their practice, they denied that they ever knew him or followed him. Do we cry out, Lord, Lord, on a Sunday, but then mistreat others throughout the week? It might mean that we withhold things practically that we owe others. Well, I wonder if it's possibly something like gossip, where a friend entrusts something to us, and rather than loving them with it, we abuse them with it. God knows what his people are up to. I suppose there is a little part of each one of us that quite enjoys writing other people off. I know it's something that I battle with. As we come to the close of our introduction to Amos, it would be so easy to think of other people, of other nations, of other political systems that need to hear this warning from Amos. But you see, the way Amos constructs chapter one and chapter two, he doesn't want us to think about other people He doesn't want us to think first and foremost about the nations, although they matter, or even about other Christians and how they are living, although that matters. No, the finger circles in, and it points to me. And God says, I know how, Pete, you are living. You need to hear this. And also for each one of us here tonight, this isn't a message for the person sitting next to you or the church next to us, or for the nation next to us. It's for us here tonight, God's people. And so what about us? What about, dare I say it, middle class, quite comfortable, peaceful, successful us? Do we say, Lord, Lord, but do not do what he says? I want to finish with the words that I began with tonight from Psalm 139, for I think these capture how we should approach Amos. David says again, Psalm 139, if you want to look at it, page 629, the Church Bibles. David says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. We are going to be searched over the next few weeks. 
that's what's going to happen. The goal of the searching is not condemnation. It is not to make us go away feeling guilty yet again about our failings to live out our faith. That is what the nations have been doing for centuries, trying harder, trying to be good people, and it doesn't work. Let's not try that way again tonight. There is a better way. There is a way, as David puts it, the way everlasting. It is the way where we stop pretending to ourselves and to other people and to God that we've got it sorted, that we, are, we have arrived. Instead, it's the way of recognizing once again our need, how we have failed, and it, it's a way of running to the foot of the cross. At the foot of the cross, we find the way everlasting. It is a way of everlasting joy and peace. And so here's what I pray for us over the coming weeks. I pray that we would allow God's word to search us, to open up our hearts before him, not to condemn, but to drive us once again to the foot of the cross. Let's run there together. In a moment, we're going to say together a confession, and Peter will come and lead us in that confession. But let's just spend a moment in silence. You might want to use Psalm 139 just to meditate over what we've looked at. And why not just speak to God in the silence? Maybe talk to him about your willingness to let him search you in the coming weeks.